So in today's gospel, we hear the story of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. It's a story that we hear in other gospels as well. And it's one that can be kind of confusing, actually. It's a a strange kind of a timing, and it's one that's debated amongst uh, theologians as far as, like, when it actually happened, even. Like, there are some who say that this is possible that it happened after the resurrection. I'm not buying that, personally. But it's one of those ones that's talked about so very much that people have lots of opinions about it. Fair enough. We find ourselves with Peter, James, and John. Three out of the four of the disciples who Jesus really kind of specially honed in on. Um, Andrew would be the other one, Peter's brother. But Andrew's not there for some reason, and that's worthy of consideration and a different meditation altogether. But what we're hearing about is James and John, who are brothers, very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Very sure of themselves, as they have been for a while. We hear about James and John's mother, who very much boosts their ego in every encounter. Good mother. But there's lots for these two to learn. And then we have Peter, who we all know that Peter is flawed from beginning to end. You know, Peter, he shows redemption way down the road, as each of us do. We're not quite soup yet, as my mother would say to me. We're still simmering. There's still some flavor that needs to be incorporated a little bit. It's one of those southern colloquialisms that I've heard my entire life that never made sense until I was an adult, and I'm like, not soup yet. (laughs) But we have this setting where there's three of these chosen ones, and even in their mission, before we've even gotten to the crucifixion and the resurrection, they're kind of screwing it up still. Stay here and pray. And they fall asleep. You know, it's kind of like go to school and learn, but your head is on the desk. Not that anyone ever sleeps during class, but that's kind of what's happening with these who are intended to be there and waiting. When they wake up, they see something that they've never seen before. And it's described in a way that's kind of confusing to most people. We hear about this brilliant white light. If you've ever had the blessing and opportunity to go to the Holy Land and been to Mount Tabor, there's the chapel of of the Transfiguration that's there. They have these fascinating uh, lamps that exist within the floor that aren't really lamps, actually. They're mirrors. And when the Transfiguration, the Feast of the Transfiguration, because it's on the lunar calendar, the sun hits it in a very special way at a certain time. And the way that that light is reflected is a brilliant, almost bluish light. What we know about science to this day, it's the most pure of light that is displayed. Funny how it was described as a whitish-blue light 2,000 years ago without any of the scientific knowledge that we have. But this purest white light is displayed. This is puzzling. And Peter responds as the staunchest man of faith that he could. He's like, let's build three tents. It's also a very manly action at that point. I've seen something tremendous. Let me build something. (laughs) But what he's trying to do is really kind of emulate what he's seen in the past and 
Some would say, well, this would be kind of that, uh, that feast of uh, Sukkoth that's produced or that's uh, celebrated within the Jewish community, that feast of fruits where one would have a festival of tents and tents would be built. But it's to commemorate something that's happened rather than to be that food that sends us going forward. This is one of those many elements within our faith that always kind of is a great way for me to remind people that we're never supposed to stay where we are, but that we are a pilgrim people always on a journey, always moving forward. The trajectory of Christianity is of constant change and constant movement. Not to be staying in one place, building three tents and commemorating it as this is how it always should be. But rather, this is a point along many points that will be tied together with grace and with love. We then hear that this is where we're going to be staying and suddenly this cloud comes upon the mountain. We've heard about this cloud being on the mountain before. This is what happened when Moses went up the mountain to go and get those tablets as he got the law itself. We hear about that noise that's taking place up there with this cloud that comes upon because, well, that's where God is. In those unknown things, in that inability to comprehend or see. And so there's this moment of kind of stopping. And we hear a phrase that's familiar but not the same as what we've heard before. This is my chosen son. Not just my beloved son, but it's, it's a little different in Luke's gospel. What does that mean? Well, he's showing that there is a plan, there is something that is going to happen. But it also reminds us that we need to listen to what is in fact being said. This chosen son takes Peter, James, and John away from that idea of tent building, but rather makes them know that something is going to happen, something big, something profound. One of the uh, things that I've enjoyed debating amongst other theologians is, is this a prefigurement of Pentecost? And I would say, yeah. It fills those who are present with this sense of curious awe. It's described in Scripture as fear. Anytime I hear the word fear described in Scripture, I go, no. It's awe. It's wonder. It may have an element of confusion to it, but fear... That's an emotional response. It's a biological response. It's one that happens without us even choosing it. And that's not an act of faith. That's not something that necessarily happens within the presence of God. But the awe of the Lord is a gift of the Spirit. And it's something that always happens in the presence of Christ each and every time. A sense of wonder and curiosity that makes us go, well, what is next? And how can I be a part of that? Knowing that they've seen something unbelievable, that their friend was literally just glowing. <laughs> it's to know, well, if that happened, anything could happen. Beside Jesus, they see Moses and Elijah. Now, there are many among you who are probably asking, well, how do they know that that was Moses and Elijah? You know, was Moses hand holding tablets up there? You know, looking like the Ten Commandments movie? Was, Moses, or was Elijah handy, holding an empty cup going, I need a refill? That's funnier if you know 
Jewish faith. Um, but <laughs> that really should have gotten more chuckles, people. We got studying to do. Um, but they didn't necessarily know based on appearance, but they just knew. There's one of those things where you can just kind of get that intuition. Anybody ever experienced that in some way? When you're in a special place, when something good is happening, where you're like, I know that this is the right place for me to be. It's what happens here so often. When I hear that great amen that's professed from so many lips at the same time, and that music is going and the hair stands up on the back of your neck, God is present. And it's an amazing moment when that happens. But this isn't where we stay. I'm always explaining to people, you know, my life would be amazing if all I got to do was celebrate the Mass. But it's about this much of priesthood. What we get to do here is the best of it. But what we do out there is the hardest of the work. It's the way in which we allow ourselves to be fed here and transformed in a way so that as we go out there, we do the work. Now, the transfiguration so oftentimes it's thought about as the changing of Jesus. Jesus doesn't change. God changes. God doesn't change, rather, ever. Is, was, always will be. Kind of a statement of not changing. And so we realize that it's how we see the Christ that changes. It's how we recognize that goodness that transforms within us. That transfiguration meaning a changing of appearance. So that we see things different than we had before. But it's not even just about how we see things. One of the most things that I've become aware of over the course, especially of my adult life, is I see every room completely different than everybody else does. can't help it. God made my brain very different. I have ADHD. I perceive things in a very different way. I feel things in a very different way than most people. And... For a long period of my life, I just wondered, why didn't the rest of the world see the world the way that I did? It didn't make sense to me. I couldn't quite comprehend that. And for me, it almost seemed like a troubling kind of a thing. But as I matured and grew with that, I came to realize, well, that means that everybody else sees things very differently as well. And so it kind of changed the way that I would approach a room rather than just try to perceive it as I'm taking everything in. It's a matter of, well, I wonder how they're perceiving it. We ask a greater question and we find out, well, what is it that you see? What is it that you feel? Because I only know what it is that I am experiencing. But what we're called to do is to truly empathize and to love and to cherish the way that other people see things as well in many ways. But what we're able to do through our faith and what we do as we come to this table and we're fed, we go forth in the world and have an opportunity to change the minds of others as they see the Christ within you. We all receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ at this table. But as we go forth, we're human tabernacles embodying Christ. And so people should see that Jesus in you, in the way that you live your life, and the joy that you share with other people. The acceptance and the way in which we listen. It's the way in which we observe and the way in which we participate that makes us a Christian people. Far too often, when someone says, well, I'm a Christian, people will go, Christians don't have the best reputation in the world around us right now. Fair. In fact, I'm not going to argue with anyone who says that. Because each and every one of us have an opportunity to do better, to be a greater love, 
to be that profound witness and to allow people to encounter Christ through the love that we share and the way in which we go forth into this world as vibrant light and love, changing the minds and hearts of how people see you, but also how they receive the Christ. And so my friends, as we are here in the Sunday, as we come forward to this table to be fed, may within our minds we be ever so aware that this is a transformative event, not just changing wine and bread into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, but as we in fact consume our Lord, that we too are in fact changed, that we change the way in which we live our life, and others will see that change within us. This is how we go forth into a world bearing a kingdom of love and compassion, of acceptance and goodness. And this is how we bring about the kingdom of God here and now. Amen.